The passage in Luke that we are uh, that we've read tonight, we have uh, spent some time in it. In fact, this is the third year in which we have been in Luke chapter two. And you may, at this point, if you've been here a few times, say, "When are we going to go somewhere else?" And uh, you you may have thought that we have beat a dead horse or beat this horse to death, and there's nothing more that we can get out of it. Um, But I'm actually of the opinion that there is something here in Luke that is much more tangible, much closer to our heart uh, individually as it relates to how we experience the gospel. In years past, we have spent some time uh, focusing on the political aspects of Luke. Luke begins his discourse describing the the uh, Roman, centur- uh, Roman Caesar who is in power, the governor who's been installed over Palestine, and focuses on the historical aspect of Christianity. But one of the things to keep in mind here is that Luke is not only addressing political themes, and so if you want to refer to those ideas, we can look at, at that uh, uh, from last year. You can ask me later to see what we talked about, but I'm not actually going to be addressing any of the historical claims of Christianity directly, although I'm not going to abandon them, of course, but we're not going to spend our time there. We're actually going to spend our time, how does this passage relate to our celebration of Christmas? First, at the beginning of the passage in the story, we see uh, Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem, and then at that point, they are deposited in the inn, if you will. They, they arrive in the inn and the baby is born. Christ is born. And at that point, we then come to the shepherds. And this is where I want to focus on uh, tonight, is who these shepherds are and what they are experiencing as it relates to their heart and how it becomes for them an avenue to experience the grace of God. The shepherds at first initially only see one angel. They see only one angel, and they are surrounded by the glory of the Lord, and they're absolutely terrified. They're they're beyond uh, any sort of peace at all, but the angels did not want to inspire this peace or give away this peace. The the angels are not attempting to make these people afraid. And what I think is interesting there is the angels do not intend to bring fear upon the shepherds, but rather instead we see a little glimpse of our hearts. It's our tendency to become afraid whenever we see God doing anything at all. And so our culture today is even dominated by this sort of fear. Think, consider the themes of the news that you've heard throughout 2015. Our, our culture is worried about the political system, both at a federal and state level. It's worried about a number of other things with the economy, with whether economic power or uh, political strategies. And it looks to these as saviors. Now, of course, we could go off into political discourse here, but the, uh, the popular news cycle today is what I want to focus on. It's driven by fear, fear of the police, fear of police brutality. That was a major theme this year. Fear of immigrants. That's a current debate and topic that's raging right now. Fear of the government that is federal or state or even local, and fear of recession. These are fears which drive national conversations, as they now refer to them. When I was growing up, it was just called the news. Now we get to talk about it. It's a conversation. But is this the way that we should live? Should we imitate the culture around us, or is there a better way? Is there a different way? I believe what we see with the shepherds is a better and different and new way. And it's to this way that I want to explore how should we live 
in modern America as believers or as those who are seeking to follow after this Christ who we believe was born 2,000 years ago. And I want to do it by turning to a story, a story actually within this story, not directly, but by allusion. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis offers us a world that's dominated by fear. Now, at first, it may not look like it's dominated by fear. I don't remember Lewis directly naming fear as the thing which controls Narnia, but in a moment, I think you'll agree that it actually is the principal power over which Narnia is troubled, or by which Narnia is troubled. The White Witch at the beginning of the book has brought on a hundred years winter, evocative of the hundred years war of European history. It's a cold spell upon Narnia, and this spell is uh, bringing on a winter. With her magic wand, she goes around and turns the individual creatures in Narnia into stone. They're literally paralyzed by her evil. They are put in, uh, they're paralyzed in place and unable to do anything about the spell that she puts on them. And when Lucy, one of the protagonists, although not the direct main hero, when she enters into this world, she is immediately met by this fawn, Mr. Thomas. Perhaps you remember Mr. Thomas. He's a lovable character, but he himself is mixed with sin. He's, he's already joined and allied himself to the White Witch and her, her uh, kingdom and is a traitor. He's a spy. And he actually gives up Lucy. And uh, at the beginning of, of the discussion that Mr. Thomas and Lucy have is this phrase that I think captures the entire spirit of fear of our age, but also the spirit of fear which reigns over Narnia, and that is that it is always winter and never Christmas. And so at the beginning of the book, we see a land that's covered with snow, covered with winter, but never actually experiencing the joy of Christmas. Of course, Lewis doesn't point out that Christmas comes from our world, and yet they celebrate it in Narnia. He thinks that Christmas is a universal theme. It's something that goes beyond our human experience and touches all worlds. A little later, when the children are with the beaver, you maybe remember Mr. Beaver, he also brings up this phrase, always winter and never Christmas. But Mr. Beaver tells them a rumor about our hero's arrival. Now again, Lucy, Edmund, Peter, Susan, some of them are protagonists, but they're not the hero of the story. Mr. Beaver says to Lucy, they say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he has already landed. And at this point in the story, Aslan is not even described. He's just mentioned by name. While the children go with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver into their cave to eat and drink tea, they, had a, they hear a sleigh approaching. And they think it's the White Witch who's come to uh, take away the kids, take away the children. But Mr. Beaver goes and cautiously looks out at what, he, uh, what, what the noise was caused by. They heard a sled and they thought it was the witches, but in fact it wasn't. Mr. Beaver says, come and see, this is a nasty knock for the witch. It looks as if her power is already crumbling. Instead of the witch, it's Father Christmas who was on the sleigh. And Father Christmas himself tells us why his arrival has come. He says, I've come at last. She has kept me out for a long time, but I have gotten in at last. Aslan is on the move. The White Witch's magic is weakening. What was rumored to be at, uh, this, this character, Father Christmas, an iconic figure if there ever was, says, indeed, the rumors are true. Aslan is coming and the white witch's power is already weakening. Before Aslan even enters into the foreground of the story, 
before he shows up in any way at all, before he goes to the stone table, before he comes back to life or battles the white witch, the witch loses her power and the snow begins to melt. Now, isn't that interesting that C.S. Lewis has put in his story A Christmas Without Snow? I think that he's, he's, uh, he's encountered Christmases without snow. At the same time that the snow is melting, Christmas comes, Father Christmas enters and brings gifts. In this story, I believe Lewis is representing a miniature narrative or a miniature retelling of the gospel. That is, the gospel which begins at Christmas. The coming of Christ, therefore, is the ending of our fear and the inbreaking of joy. This joy is not for Israel alone, as we saw with the shepherds and their declaration to, uh, sorry, the angels and their declaration to the shepherds, but rather it is for everyone. This joy is needed today more than ever. Even as Christ enters into the world, before he goes to the cross, before he unveils himself and his ministry to Israel, the, the enemy's power is already weakening. Light begins to break in and it scatters the darkness, and so our fears are really ended at Christmas. They're not simply ended alone at the cross, but rather that effect, that event, is so powerful that it is not constrained by time. It breaks in and reaches backwards into the beginning of his life. And so it is to this understanding, this joy, which we seek to remember and re-celebrate every Christmas, which is the answer to our fears. The shepherds are filled with fear. They're told to fear not. And then the angels tell them, for a sign will be given. Here is the surety or the, the, the uh, actual unveiling of the promise that they're given. And the angels say a sign will be given and that sign will be a child. And so we turn now to the nature of God's signs throughout history. By the birth of Christ, God testifies to the folly of the way of the world. Remember, we earlier talked about the Roman centurion or the Roman uh, Caesar and Herod, who was the king over Palestine at the time. Here, God is demonstrating the folly of their plan. Rome trusts in their army. And Herod trusts in his throne and his palaces and his great architecture that he had made. But here the shepherds say that the, the thing that guarantees their joy will be a small, tiny sign, the sign of a child. They are to have joy, joy because their sin is ended, because by Christ, by this child, they will have peace with God. In verse 12 it says, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wopped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. The sign that God gives to these shepherds that they should not fear is the birth of a child. They weren't to even trust in the angels and their word themselves. Consider this. Over and over again in the scriptures, God gives promises first to uh, first directly to Adam and Eve, but then most of his promises come by the way of angels. And those who receive the promise are told to believe just simply at the word of the promise, but now God is speaking and he speaks by his son. They are not to trust the angels, but rather an infant. When Christ enters into human history, his very birth itself is a sign of the gospel. It's a testimony of the gospel. God delights in glorying in weak things, not strong things. Consider the nature of a child for a moment. If a child was to be left alone by his or herself completely without the help of any human, uh, any intervention, whether it was... um, by, by either human or divine origin, that child would die. 
that child would go hungry or get into trouble or get into some sort of dangerous situation, lacking shelter, they would, they would die. And so here we see an infant not as a precious thing, but also as a very vulnerable thing and a, a thing that is considered in the eyes of the world to be light and trivial and unimportant. And God uses this exact symbol to show the importance of the nature of the gospel, that God shames the wisdom of men and justifies himself and vindicates his cause and his plan. God is saying something by sending his son as a baby. He's saying that those things in which the world trusts are false comforts. We've already discussed how in the historical context, Rome trusts in their army, Herod trusts in his throne. The people of Israel trust in their understanding of the promise that the Messiah will come and bring about a political salvation, but none of these are right. God tells the shepherds then to put their trust in a child. And this dichotomy has to be seen. But this is actually the same for us. It's same, same for you and I. Consider the things that you have been tempted to or are currently putting your trust in. Consider your money, your career, the influence that you have, whether it be with friends or at your job, your spouse, or if you're unmarried, your friendships that you hold so close or your family, either those who are naturally family or those who you've adopted, consider the end of them, that is, the place to where they're going, it all will disappear. Now, I've been accused sometimes of bringing the gloom into Christmas, but I, I actually think it's important to see how empty human life is and the need for a divine substance or a divine fulfillment of our deepest desire, something to trust in, which never passes away and never fades. At one, day, at one point or another, no matter how faithful or loving the family or friends or how great the job or how great the political influence, at one point, at one day in your life, these will end and they will be gone and taken away. So Christ is given to us as the surety of our joy. He's given to us as the thing and the, the one in whom to place our trust, the one who will never disappoint and who will never die. And so God invites these shepherds now at this great point in the story, after having told them that there will be a sign and this, this sign will be a child, a small and insignificant sign, God then invites the shepherds to participate in the telling of his story. In verse 15, it says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Notice the shepherd is not waiting until he gets to Bethlehem to verify if something has happened. He says, Let us see this thing that has happened. He has faith at the immediate moment that he's told this promise by the angels. Verse 16, And when they with haste uh, went and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. I think this is where we see a boldness for sharing our faith, our experience of Christ. And here the shepherds then bear much fruit in telling. Verse 18 shows how there was an initial fruit, but then verse 19 is a great fruit. And all who heard it at it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. At one level, it is good to share your faith such that people will begin to think about it. But look at what takes place by their sharing of what has taken place. Uh, 
through what happens in Mary. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. God is using the shepherds telling to make or to, to cause to be a treasuring. The telling connected to the treasuring is so clear here. When Christ enters into human history, his birth is a symbol of the gospel. He comes as one who is weak and vulnerable, and he invites us into the seemingly weak method of spreading joy. And that is the simple telling of the truths of the gospel with our words. You will probably in the next few days be engaged in various gift giving. I know my car has one gift and my wife's car has dozens of gifts because we drove separately. And we will exchange gifts with our loved ones, with our friends, with those who we wish to bless. But here we see actually that the greatest gift that one could have is not a gift that's external, but what Mary does with the promise that she's given. She treasures it. Certainly a gift is what's it, what it's worth to the person who receives it. And Mary shows the value of understanding the importance of this child, that he would not only be someone that we meditate upon once a year, but rather that he would be treasured. It says in here that Mary treasured these things in her heart. It doesn't say that she treasured them for a time, and then after a few minutes or a few days, it became trivial to her. No, the implication is clear. Mary is treasuring these things and will keep them. So our call, our, our invitation into this moment in history, into this retelling of the Christmas story today, is like the shepherds, trusting in the promised child, that we would go and tell others about the hope that we have. It's not enough for you to give trivial gifts or light gifts. You must, if you, if you know Christ, you must see the glory of the invitation to enter into this story, as great as it is. I love Chronicles of Narnia, and I love the story which we just examined in small detail, but there is a much greater story that's being told, and you are now by faith and in being invited to participate into it. And the way that you participate in this story is by you yourself trusting in this one, this child who was born, this small and seemingly insignificant sign, which God actually says is mightily powerful. He says by this child that he is able to save to the uttermost. No matter where you are, who you are, what you've done, this child, we believe, is able to not only make, penalty, make payment for your sins, but also to absolve you from the guilt and to recreate you and restore you to fellowship with the Father. And then by placing your trust in that Christ, becoming like these shepherds and telling of the one that we trust in. And so this is, again, what we are invited to do. We're invited to come and behold him as we sang, but we're not only to behold him, we're to place our trust upon him and let that trust remain. And then from there, tell others. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the mighty glory of this story that we know, Lord, it's not just a empty story, but it's a story with truth. It is a story that is true itself and, and also has application for our lives. We pray, God, that you would do a miracle in our hearts, that we would be, be like these shepherds, able to behold by faith what takes place at the manger that we celebrate again this year. Lord, we also ask that you would give us the unique grace of being like Mary, that we would be ones who treasure the promise that your son brings. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.